Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war in the suit, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Up, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. It's Thursday, it's sports day. Tim Costello has always joined with Scott Barzilla. Scott, how we doing? Uh, we are doing well, and I hear we have good news on the soccer front. We do. Uh, team is playing well. We won on Saturday night, a two nothing or two nil victory. As I get, you know, a little better in my soccer terms. The team is two zero and one so far this season, playing with heart. And uh, yeah, man, it's it's been it's been fun. I don't know if I ever talked to you too much about the actual team that I work for in baseball, but we set a record for the worst losing percentage in the history of professional baseball. We went 25 and 75. And the next year we went 26 and 74. And those players celebrated on win number 26. So this is the first time since I worked in Sugarland eight years ago that I've been a part of a winner. And it feels really good. Like It feels good to be like, my team is good. You know, and, and if y'all listened to the uh, political show yesterday, you know that Tim and I, you know, kind of dreamed up a scenario where he could get his team into the English Premier League. You know, uh, some things would have to happen, you know. Including things, a war. <laughs> including a war uh, and some unlikely winners of that war. But, you know, it's possible, right? You could dream. Yeah, I think, you know, hey, we are – we are trying to, uh, you know, progress in, in the American pro ranks too, right? Like we have a very um, growing soccer community here in the United States, and it's one of the fastest growing sports professionally in America. When you look at, you know, the way soccer is built in other countries, you have the academies and you have, you know, the Premier League, obviously the highest league, but it's just like baseball. We've got double A AA and triple A and, and things along that nature. So the United States is starting to get there. With the MLS and and uh, USL and, and my league the NP, NPSL, um, and then you've got below that you've got the UPSL, and so these leagues are are starting to gain a little bit more traction here in the United States, and 
Um, you know, I think things like the World Cup and stuff like that definitely help the growth of the game here locally. But yeah, man, it's 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 a good start to the season. The team is leaving. Actually, they would have already played at this point. We're recording on Tuesday night, but um, by the time this episode comes out, we have a game Wednesday in San Antonio. Uh, should be our probably our toughest matchup of the season, a road game uh, against a team that's leading the conference right now. So um, being tested here week four of the season. Uh, so how was the attendance at that third game? So the third game was a road game. Um, this one was in Fort Worth. And to be honest, Scott, this team drew well. I went out there because it's not far. I mean, within an hour, I feel like I should go support my team on the road. So I went out there. And also being new to the soccer world, I kind of wanted to see how some of these other teams were were doing it. You know, this was a team that has been around for 10 years in this league. Uh, so I kind of wanted to see how they put things on. And, man, they put on a good show. They they drew a crowd about, you know, six 700. Um, but they play at a high school stadium that's in the suburbs of Fort Worth, and so it's a little bit smaller. Uh, it's where those bleachers only had maybe eight rows to them. So that crowd of, of six 700 looked really good. Uh, sometimes when you get these huge-ass stands, 1,000 people looks like nothing, and when you get the appropriate size stadium – you know, six, 700 people looks like 2000. And so, uh, you know, I, I think this, this Fort Worth team really did a, a fantastic job of, of putting on a show. Uh, but I, and they had rowdy fans. They had guys who were out there with their own flags. They've got, you know, they've got the, um, God, what are the uh, hooligans, if you may, you know, the, the hooligans that are out there. But again, our guys showed up on the road. We didn't have our, our A team and we still found a way to get a win. Um, but yeah, it was a good crowd out there, Scott. It was, it was nice to see how another team puts on a game. So, uh, what suburb were they played in? Cause I, you know, I'm pretty familiar with Fort Worth. So, all right, let me pull it out for you here. It was, I think it was castle castle something. Uh, okay. I think I know where that is. Let me pull it up for you. The Fort Worth Vaqueros is, is the team. Um, they play their games. Ah, come on. This is live radio at its best, right? Where you can't, uh, you don't have that information right in front of you and you're just struggling to get it out as fast as you can. I still can't find the name of the school that the Fort Worth Vaqueros FC play at. It is Castle. So, you know what? I should just look at my ways of the places that I drove to, and that'll oh, probably get it to be faster than uh, than what I'm looking for this way. So my first year team... Castleberry High School. There it is. Waze was the okay. answer. Okay. So my first year that I taught, I actually taught at a school called Carter Riverside, which was in Fort Worth. And they were 3A uh, back when it was everything was just up to 5A. So we didn't have 6A yet. And I still remember, uh, have you ever heard of a school called Alito? The name sounds really familiar. They were in the same district, but Alito is a football factory. So I went out there because, you know, Alito is actually fairly close to where you know, my apartment was, you know, on the same side. So when I drove out there just to watch 84 to 7. And they were running the entire second half was continuous clock. It was still eighty four to seven. It was the biggest drumming I've ever seen. But yeah, there's there's some really 
uh, Fort Worth is really, I, I think it's a great tale. There's a lot of uh, a good suburbs around there. So doesn't surprise me. Uh, the Fort Worth Cats also got a lot of uh, support back in the day when they were still active. Uh, they're a minor league team. You know, one of the nicest things about taking over this team is I had, we had like 15 or so season ticket holders with the Air Hogs, which was the baseball team that I worked for. And I'd say about half of them were former Fort Worth Cats season ticket holders who, when the Cats went under, they were in the same league at that time as, as our team was. And so they just said, okay, Grand Prairie is not that much farther. We'll become Grand Prairie season ticket holders. Well, two of them, uh, I don't want to release any names or anything, but you know, two of my season ticket holders, I reached out to them. I said, hey, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm running this team now. Uh, I'd love to have you out as my guest to the game. Uh, so they came out to opening night. These two wonderful people sat through two hours of lightning delays, two hours you know, in the rain. You know, it was not a great opening night. And they had a great time. And then they hop online and they buy two Gaios t-shirts. And they go to the road game in Fort Worth. And they want to rep Gaios colors while they're out there, even though they live in Fort Worth. And it was just, it's, it's just so fantastic to be able to engage some fans on that level and, and to have people who are, you know, new to the area and I mean, new to the team. Um, they weren't fans previously. They came out cause I invited them and they're, and they would legitimately say they're Gaios fans. The guy's wife doesn't really like soccer, but she loves watching our team play because of how aggressive and, and uh, the style at which we play. And so it's, it's just really nice to to be able to to bring in new fans. So the one thing I'll say about the Fort Worth Cats, uh, they actually built a field for them in the latter years because they used to play at a high school stadium, and then finally they built a, an independent uh, field. Well, when's the last there. time you've seen that field, Scott? Oh, it's been a while. We were actually still talking about Bago, you know, back then. You know, I which can, I can you, tell you, it's missing a few copper pipes. As it's uh, become a, a homeless vagrant hangout now. At this oh, point. I'm, sure, I'm sure it has. But one of the coolest things I, I saw, and I don't know if y'all did this during y'all's leagues, where when somebody hit a home run, they actually passed around a bucket for people to put in donation money for the guy that hit the home run because they don't make hardly anything. You know, our best, our highest played pay, player made like two grand a month during season, and that's it. Like every, everybody was under that. And the guy who got two grand was a player coach. So I mean, so you you could I mean if they if you had a good night and you know they drew hundreds of fans for a while, you know you could walk out with a hundred hundred fifty bucks if you hit a digger. I mean uh, that's we talked about doing it, but to be honest with you, um, we inflated our attendance numbers a little bit for the league website. Uh, we uh, number one always went paid attendance, never actual in person attendance. Number two. Anybody who bought a sponsorship got season tickets from us, whether you came to any game or not. So those were sold tickets. And so, like, I'd say, like, 80% of our ticket numbers never actually came to the ballpark. So if we did pass that bucket, you'd be going home with, like, a buck fifty. TCU's old stadium, which was there when I was in school, it was a dub. And so TCU wouldn't draw anything. And so we actually had a guy who was a heckler who was actually labeled, we always called him UBF. Because the uh, the Star Telegram would say an unusually boisterous fan, so we called him the UBF. And uh, one of the most hilarious things I remember: this guy, you know, strikes out on like three fastballs, 
And so he just yells out, scouting report says can't catch up to fastball. <laughs> We're just, I mean, it was just hilarious. And, and it was one of those things where there's like, you know, maybe 50 people in the audience. And so you could hear everybody. And I mean, it was just, it was awesome. That's one of the nice things about, as a heckler, at least on a, on a sparse night is, you know, that they hear you. Um, where we were sitting in the game on, on Saturday, uh, there weren't a lot of people in this park. I kind of wanted to be away from people, and I was near the team bench and whatnot. And I'll be honest, I got into the game. And at one point, I'm up, I'm standing, and I'm screaming at the ref, and I, I make eye contact with him. And I look at him, and I say, I've never seen a worse referee in my life. And he makes eye contact with me, and I'm like, shit, this is not good. Like, I'm the president. And he, he goes, Thank you very much. And he just keeps on going. I was like, oh, you heard me. He's like, now I'm a fan. He heard me. I got him. Oh, my gosh. So uh, before we get to the golf talk, there's a guy that we used to go to the TCU games with. And he would utter the same thing. And he would be yelling it at the ref. But he would never say, hey, ref. But he would always say, your mother's a crack whore. Wow. 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 He, but he would never say, hey, ref. And so we're sitting here playing rice at TCU. And this older gentleman comes up to him and he says, son, you're better than that. Your university's better than that. So, you know, we started, you know, just, you know, joking with him, sitting there, you know, yelling out, you know, hey, your mother's a drug addict in the oldest profession. <laughs> you know, see if they, you know, but it, it was awful. Yeah, he would do that once a game, and everybody would just kind of turn around, going, "Oh my god, your mother <laughs> likes free base cocaine. <laughs> she likes it was, the rocks." It was just awful. Okay, so we've been, you know, kind of going on and off here, uh, talking about golf here in the last uh, few weeks. You know, trying to get me sized up and. Uh, one of the things I told you on text is that I, I did get the fitting, but I never buy anything close to a holiday. I've been kind of taught that lesson. Uh, so you know, kind of waiting for Father's Day to roll around to see, you know, what's going to happen. You never know. Um, I don't think I'll wind up with clubs. I, I don't th- I think that's a long shot, but, you know, it could wind up with some gift cards that could, you know, affect uh, where, you know, you buy some clubs, obviously. So we'll kind of have to see how that works out. And Scott, one of the things that we talked about in that text was, I think you needed to go full on a Christmas story and start subliminally advertising to your wife and family that you want new golf clubs for Father's Day. So if you remember back to the Christmas story, he's opening magazines to certain pages. He's slipping He's slipping other magazines inside so that way you can see the red. So I think we need to get some golf ads slipped into a magazine or a book or we're just casually leaving a golf galaxy flyer on the counter or, hey, babe, did you notice golf galaxy's reopening or I don't know. Maybe you you keep saying the word golf around her phone. So when she gets on social media, all the ads are golf stuff. Well, what's funny is that uh, we have a tradition. Uh, we started way long time ago where we take uh, one of us takes our daughter out once a week. It's usually on a Monday, but sometimes Mondays just you know can't happen. So it happened tonight, uh, actually Tuesday night as we're recording this. And I kind of told her and I said, you know what? 
uh, guy I do podcasts with has offered to be a personal shopper. Just saying. <laughs> and I don't know if she, you know, she got the, uh, hopefully she'll understand. Maybe she'll pass that along. Who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if I get lucky. That's hey, about as, I mean, that's about as direct you, as I can be. <laughs> for you, Scott, I am willing to waive my $150 fee. Yeah, that, that's so. You know, I went to the shop. I actually didn't send you. I'll, I'll just send uh, send you the picture club. Hold so on. So let me ask you this: because I, before you explain your golf store visit today, because you told me you're going to go into one, I get this feeling of anxiety before I go into a golf store, almost because I'm scared I'm going to find something I like, and I don't know if that happens to you, but like I, I feel so proud of myself. If I can keep my purchases to like 20 bucks or less, like if I could find a club I want for $20, I feel like, okay, I did it. I, I did pretty good today, but you just, sometimes I get nervous. Cause like, you never know what you're going to find that you just can't turn down. Uh, so I texted you a picture of what I did find, uh, but there wasn't much in this, uh, this you didn't shop. buy that. Did you? No, no. Okay. That, would have, okay. that was, that would have been the driver. I think I had back in like, 87, 88, somewhere around there. This is like uh, what David Sims was teeing off with on the final day of uh, the U.S. Open in 10 Cup when all of a sudden his club switched from wood to metal. Well, you know, what I'm wondering, and I was wondering about this, uh, did you ever play golf with metal spikes? No, it was never a thing for me. Actually, you know, I take that back. I had one pair that was sent to me by my grandfather and – at Clear Lake Golf Course, do you remember how, like, by hole four or five, you were far away from the clubhouses you could be, and then you worked yeah. your way back? So I'm walking the course. My grandfather found out I got into golf in, like, seventh or eighth grade. He sends me all this golf stuff that was a garage. Most of it was, like, crap, but there's this gorgeous pair of saddle golf shoes with metal spikes. And I'm like, I'm going to rock these bad boys. Well, Scott, I get to, like, the fourth or fifth hole, and now I'm, like, I'm, I'm, un- I'm, like, I'm like uneven. And I look back. And the heel of my golf shoe has come off, and I am as far away from the from the clubhouse as you could possibly be, pre cell phone era. So I can't even like call my mom and be like, "Hey, can you come pick me up on Diana Lane at this?" Because I I could cut and call. I had to literally walk all the way back to the clubhouse, like like hop like a literally a guy with a freaking peg leg the whole way back. So but that's my metal spikes. So you know. One of the funny things we did, I remember, uh, so my parents, they had a condo at uh, Westwood Shores, which is in Trinity, Texas. And that's where I learned how to play golf. Uh, I started playing golf like early on. I was playing like seven or eight, you know, years old. And you had like those junior sets of clubs, you know, where you have like a driver, you have like a five iron, seven iron, nine iron, you know, something like that. Uh, but I would spend hours and hours and hours on the putty green. And that's, you know, that's where I learned how to chip is I chipped with a seven iron. Uh, and so I could still get up, up and down off the you know side of the green relatively regularly. But what's funny is one of my metal spike shoes, and we were always, we were drove into, like we would stay there for a week at a time. So I remember I had junior tournaments and I would always set them up on the north side of town because, you know, Trinity is up, a little bit past Huntsville and my shoe broke in half, literally like it's like breaking in half. So there was like an Edwin Watts 
golf shop off 1960. We drove in. Now, I didn't buy these shoes at Edwin Watts. These shoes were over a year old. I have no idea where we bought the shoes. We will, we go in and we just ask, Hey, is the shoe supposed to do this? And they're like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And they go in the back and they just, they give me a pair of shoes. I mean, and we didn't, they didn't ask for a receipt. Didn't ask for, he's like, okay, I guess. Thank you. Um, but what's funny is that back in the eighties, have you ever heard of a guy named Bobby Clampett? No, I have not. So Bobby Clampett was big in the late seventies and the early eighties. He was kind of one of those young phenoms who just didn't quite make it. Uh, probably the precursor to Corey Pavin, which you probably have heard of. Uh, but he was the first one to wear rubber spikes. And so everybody called the shoes that he wore Bobby Clampett's. And so if you didn't want to buy, you know, the metal spike shoes, you bought Bobby Clampett's. And then, you know, I guess about 15 years after that is when they started that whole movement of, no, you can't wear metal spikes anymore. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how that all works out. And I wondered based on the fact that like, this is a guy who didn't really work out as much. And in fact, I'm, I'm looking at his, um, you know, profile now kind of became famous more for teaching and for course architecture throughout his career, even as a commentator than he really did as his playing career. Right. So let's say it was, you know, at that time period, Jack who, who had worn rubber spikes as opposed to Bobby Clampett. Um, you know, how much earlier is, is, is everybody switching to rubber? Yeah. It's kind of the funny thing. And it's, it's hilarious is, do you remember, the the putter that Jack used in the '86 Masters. Yeah, he like duffed a couple putts early on in the tournament because he didn't figure it out yet. It was like the was long like a, one had yeah. a, like a, a, a you know a little cavity and it's a the the shape of the putter standard by today's models, but it was a real long blade. It was huge. It was a huge blade, and yeah, everybody was going out and buying that thing. Everybody's going out, and I remember after Crenshaw won his second one, I went out and bought one of his you know kind of blade putters. Thinking, I had hey, one recently, the Cleveland Classic by Ben Crenshaw. Yeah. It's a beautiful putter. It's a gore- I buy it now again because it's such a good putter. It's a nice looking putter. I don't know if it was good for my game. You have to be a, a really good putter. You have to be a really good putter with that one. But I will say, if that's the putter that you keep like in your home office and that you practice with, and then you go out with like your regular putter that's much more forgiving and weighted better, you will putt unbelievably well. Yeah, that's probably true. So basically, you know, looking around and and we've we've kind of landed on this. And Ryan from uh from Curated still is getting in contact with me. I'm still trying to get him to to listen, you know, to every episode. Here's uh, what you need to tell. Here's what I tell people in, in the soccer and the sports world: We're looking for partners. We're not looking for sponsors. We're looking for partners. We want to help you. You want to help us. We grow together. Well, That's actually, what you tell Ryan from Curated. Well, actually, what I you know, and he said that uh, he could hook us up with their spokesperson. I'm like, okay, yeah. Well, we're hey, yeah. Well, that's new information to me, Scott. Yeah. And so you know, he hasn't done it yet, but you know, he said he will. So okay, this well, guy's really going all out for this sale. I gotta say, yeah. he's working for it, Scott. He really yeah. wants your money. He does. Uh, and, and, and if I had the money, you know, to, to spend, uh, 
I mean, right now, spending it on being able to breathe regularly. So, you know, I guess, you know, what, what's more important? I don't know, breathing or golf? I, sometimes it's a toss-up. I eat, sleep, and breathe golf, Scott, so I don't know the difference. I'm just I'm just kidding. Um, but I did want to, you know, while we're on the topic of golf, I, I, I kind of feel like I've turned a corner here lately, Scott. I, you know, you and I, I don't know if I brought it up in the sports podcast last week, but I had the chance to play uh, with an aspiring Corn Ferry player. Uh, he plays on the on the APT tour, and I played with him on Thursday last week. And yeah, yeah, you did tell that story last week. So on the first night, I felt like I was going toe to toe with this guy in my mind, and it, I shot like I shot six over on the front nine, and then I go, I shoot one, I finally settle in, I shoot one under on one under on the back, and I felt like something clicked for me. Well, on Saturday or no, on Sunday, I go to play with my dad, I shoot one under on the front, um, and unfortunately, right now. I haven't mentioned this on the podcast. My course is pulling a Clear Lake golf course right now where they have intentionally killed their greens, um, except the only difference is they're not going out of business. They are uh, doing a renovation, so they'll be closed for three months. So this weekend was the last weekend you could play, but they'd already treated all the greens to kill them. So it was not easy to score. I was hitting some of the best golf shots of my life, and I just couldn't get putts to fall because you're putting on concrete, essentially. Um, so I, you know, I come to 18, Scott and I, uh, hit one of the best, unbelievably best drives of my life. I literally hit this drive like 350. So on a like 515 yard par five, a big dog leg left, I've got one six, five wind in my face, back, right pin. I've never shot under par again. I'm going to put that out there. I've never shot under par seven hour in my hand. What do you think happened? The drink. No water, but I did airmail that bad boy about 30 yards right. My hands were shaking so hard. I don't know what it is. I, I really was playing unbelievable golf. And the sad thing is I did it again on on Monday, too, when I played. Hit the same exact drive. Uh, I need to make Eve, Eagle to shoot even par. And uh, I pull hook a seven iron. Takes a bad bounce. I go 40 yards long. Hit an unbelievable wedge to get it back to 10 feet. Two putt for par, 72. So this weekend, I shot 71-72, and those will be my last two rounds at the course until uh, mid-September. So you, you did mention you played uh, Bay Forest a few weeks ago. you got to give me a call when you're down here again, uh, see if I yeah, can get out, absolutely. get out there with you. What's funny is, is that I used a golf analogy because there's a guy at, at work, uh, and I'm off for the summer, but uh, there's a guy at work that I, you know, I talk baseball with, and I used a golf analogy with him uh, when talking about Jose Abreu. And you're not playing this kind of golf now, but maybe when you were playing golf before, let's say you're in a tournament and, and I always played my worst golf in tournaments. I, I just didn't like the pressure. Let's say you go out there, you go double, triple, double, double, and you're standing on the fifth tee box. What is your thinking process when you're standing there on the fifth tee after something like that? I, on the, if I started that. I was, I'm sorry. I thought I was uh, going, if I was getting started that, if that, if my round started that way, Scott, I, I think I'm just trying to get fucked up out there. Like if I, if I went double, double, triple, double to start my round, I'm like, Hey, I, I, you know what? 
it's just get fucked up on this golf well, course today. Let's but say like, like, let's say back in the HGA days. Uh, I guess I try and you know string some pars together and 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 hope for the best. And I mean, let's let's make a more like for me. I'd say let's say I go bogey, 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 bogey to start. So I'm four over through four. I think that's a more no offense. I think that's a more realistic analogy for a bad start for me. At that point, I'm hunting. Like I literally told my I really told my dad on Sunday, and I told my friends on Monday, "Hey, we're going hunting on the back nine. We're hunting for bird. Like that's what's gonna happen. I'm trying to make birdie, and I press." Sometimes it works. Sometimes it gets worse. Um, but I feel like sometimes it just takes that mental, nope, let's turn it on, let's go get birdies. That You say that to yourself and it helps. So what we do is we actually, and, and this is, uh, my dad actually bowled in college, if you can believe that. They, they actually had a college bowling team. Uh, in fact, his one of his favorite stories is that they, uh, they beat University of Texas. He was at Sam. They beat the University of Texas in bowling, but he said they what they used to do is after like if you had a, started off with a few bad frames, they'd actually draw up a, a pencil fence, and so you do that on the golf cart, draw the fence, and you're basically starting over. Um, and that's where the analogy I came up with with Jose Abreu was okay. These first two months, you're not getting it back. You're just first two months sucked. So pretty much what you have to do from here is like every day is a new day and you just try to play the best you can today. And because if you start, if you start pressing, that's when, you know, things get really, really, really awful. Cause you know, the way I play golf now is it takes me a good, like I would say six or seven holes to physically get loose. And so I could easily be 10 or 11, you know, 12 over after six holes. And if you allow yourself to sit there and go, oh, crap, you're done. Now, if I can manage to come out like six or seven over, I'll break 90. I guarantee it. Uh, because those last 12 holes are going to be good holes. But uh, it's just, you know, the, the problem these days. And, and you can't allow yourself to get into that, you know, mentality of, oh, God, now I got to make some birdies. Because to me, I, I can't, you know, birdie. Bernie's a, is a hard number for me to get to these days. Uh, and so I've got to start thinking. I, I, and again, start. it goes to a different mindset too, right? Yours is let's string some pars together. Let's, yeah. let's you know, it, it's just different. But I mean, for me, it's, we're just, like, I honestly have never had more control of my irons and wedges than I have right now. So when I say let's go hunt for birdies, Scott, I'm throwing, I, I hit, I probably hit 14 greens both days and most of my putts were inside 15 feet, like on greens that weren't holding. So uh, like your boy was on and it's just a different thought process at that point. But I definitely remember like, let's look at like the HGA example, right? So my worst nine holes ever shoot 47, 48, 49. Now my goal is let's just find a way to break 90, right? Let's find a way for some respectability. If I have, if I could just shoot 40 or less on this back nine, we can salvage this day and look ourselves in the mirror and be like, at least I didn't shoot 90, you know? And I think, and I think in high school, at least that was the thought process. And with Brian Bray, you too, it's like, Hey, look, I can still salvage this season. I got a whole back nine to play. I got a whole second half of the season. I can still hit 25 dingers. I can still drive in a hundred runs. I just got to get hot. I got to find my swing. 
Yeah, uh, that's true. I think the best golf, remember, you know, I described when I was playing uh, the scramble at, you know, the, the first school I worked at. But I think, you know, some of the best golf, I used to, once a year, some of the high school buddies and I, we would uh, we would go up to Waterwood National and we'd just play, you know, play around at golf. Uh, more or less, you know, I think our senior year, we played hooky and just did that one, <laughs> did that one day, you know, during, you know, during the school year. And it was like right a year after high school and we're playing the tips. I don't know if you've ever played that course. That was, I have a, not, no. That, and unfortunately they closed it, but it was a fun golf course. This is where, uh, same Houston's team played. And if you played it for the tips, they actually were... no, I did play that course. Yeah, I remember that one now. The, uh, now that you mentioned that, yeah, that was the first course I ever broke eighty at in a high school tournament. Did you uh, play? Uh, did y'all play for the tips? Yeah, it was a varsity two day tournament. It was the first time I ever got to go and play the Friday Saturday, and I shot like eighty two seventy nine, and I was just like so thrilled with myself. Did you? Uh, so you play that one par three fourteen that was like two thirty all carry. Probably. Over, uh, I mean, Scott, we're talking years ago, one tournament, but yeah. Well, so I shot like 76, 77, you know, and my friends are like, man, you ought to go try out for the tour. And I'm like, I just laughed at him. I just laughed at him and said, you know, the thing is, is that I was, you know, I play a whole lot better golf just going out there and enjoying it than you know, trying to compete. We played an MGA tournament at Clear Lake when it was still open. I remember this guy. We didn't know him, but dad and I were playing. We didn't know him from anything. Didn't know him. The first thing he does, even before he introduced himself, how much are we playing for? And I'm like, you jackass. You know, what are we doing? You know, let's just play golf. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, I just, I, I don't like gambling, you know, on myself. It's just not, it's never been, you know, a fun activity for me. I, I don't play my best golf that way, but, you know, I don't know. Some people are different. I don't do it a lot. I really don't. I I started doing it for a little bit because I was trying to kind of emulate some tournament conditions where I felt like if I had some money on the line, uh, maybe it would kind of help me play a little bit better with pressure. Uh, and then there was one guy, a similar situation where my buddy Roger and I are playing as a twosome. We get paired with this guy. I've never played with him before in my life. And he literally walked up and said, how much are we playing for today? And I said, uh, we're not playing for money, but I'll play you a buck a hole. And he goes straight up like like he was going to get over on me. I said, yeah, I'll play you straight up. Well, he didn't know. I'd seen him out there before on the range, chipping and putting. I knew he was like a five or a six. He'd never seen me before. And uh, nine holes in, I'm nine bucks up. He hands me a 20 and said, uh, I got to do more practice and I'll see you later. I'm going to lose every hole in the back nine. And uh, that was that until we were forced to play with him again like two weeks ago. But this guy dropped more hard ends in a row than I've ever heard of. This guy chased somebody off the golf course, then explained to us the difference between quote unquote good black people and hard ends. And like the my friend Roger and I are looking at each other like, is this 1962? Like, what the hell is going on right now? Like, we've got uh, the governor from Alabama or, or whatever running for president on giving us his campaign speech here, and we just want to play around. And go. This guy rode his bike on something I did on the way home from school every day at Clear Lake Intermediate to my house. This guy's riding his bike. This dude takes off at a golf court, 
to ch- he doesn't work at the course. He's just a guy. He chases after him, quote unquote, kicks him off the course, drops some offensive language, and uh, we were forced to play with him again about two weeks ago. So Tim was playing with George Wallace. Man, that's that was the name of it is. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so obviously uh, that guy caked the back nine. We'll just say, yeah, uh, to kind of give a segue. So uh, actually, the Oakland Athletics. You you mentioned them in, uh, earlier on the show, uh, or actually at the end of uh, the political show. They actually won a game against the Braves. They are now 11 and 45. Okay. We talked last week about. That's so bad. Uh, like that's bad, so bad. Bad, you know, bad records. Okay. So, so just to give y'all an idea, if they finished with a 500 record from here on out, they'll avoid losing a hundred games. Barely. Barely. Okay, I think they'll be 99 and 63 if they, they close out the rest of the season 500. I think Tim and I agree that's not happening. Uh, now, on the other end, if they finish at this pace, I think they'll win about 32 or 33 games. I think we agree that's not likely. However, do you see anybody this year finishing with a worse record? Oh, God, no. It's going to be the A's and then about 15 games and then somebody. I think they win like 45, 50 games. I I think last week I was a little too bullish on the Oakland A's. Uh, and I think I may have given them, uh, we'll say, a little bit too much credit as far as like, oh, you know, every team wins 60, they lose 60. It's what they do with the other 40 that matters, right? I I don't think this – I don't – I can't – find 60 wins on this roster, Scott. I, I really can't. Like, when Seth Brown is, like, your stalwart player, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's just – I mean, I love Tony Kemp. I'm always a hugs for homers guy. But he's your starting second baseman, and he's hitting a buck 55. Um, your starting first baseman hits 240. I mean, your DH is hitting – 260 with 11 homers. Okay, like that's average, but Ramon Lariano, 209. Seth Brown, buck 93. Jace Peterson, buck 96. Nick Allen, 200. Tony Kemp, 155. Shea Langliers, 210. You got Aldemus Diaz on the bench at a buck 98. I mean, okay. I just don't see it. I don't see, I don't see more than 45 wins. Okay, so the worst team in history. If we're going by winning percentage, and we're going to go 1900 on because you know you and I discussed some really god awful 19th century teams, and, and and I'm not sure how relevant that is. It's actually not the 1962 Mets. It is actually the 1916 Philadelphia Athletics. They came in with a robust 36 and 117. So if they had been playing a 162-game schedule, I'm going to go with they would have won 38 or 39 games, somewhere around there. They would have lost well over 120, okay? So their Pythagorean record, 41 and 112. So, I mean, they were unlucky, but that's still pretty god-awful. Here's some of the guys they have on their team, though. Uh, 
have and I'm gonna butcher his name and I always do. You heard of Napla Joy? No, I have not. Probably because it's not pronounced that way. Uh, he is. Many people consider him the third or fourth best second baseman of all time. Uh, Say it one more time, Matt. What? Nap. Uh, L-A-J-O-I-E. I say LaJoy because I'm from Texas, but I know that's not how it's pronounced. Gotcha. Now, now when he, he – Oh, he's, Napoleon, Napoleon is his first yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. So we call him that. He, he's 41 at this point. So this is the tail end of his career in 1960. Uh, okay. So he, he hits uh, 246, but we're talking the dead ball era. Uh, you had, let's see, Wally Shig, who was a well-known catcher. Back in the day, he's playing in one of the outfield slots. You have uh, Stuffy McInnes, not uh, not a Hall of Famer, but a pretty decent ball player, and he hit two ninety five. That hey, good year. year that year, yeah, two ninety five. He was a pretty you know damn good player. Uh, Amos, pitcher, Amos Strunk had a good year that year. Yeah. So you had Bullet Joe uh, Joe Bush in the rotation. Uh, going fifteen and twenty four, but he uh, he's a well known pitcher uh, from that. I love that even on Baseball Reference, Scott. It still says Bullet Joe Bush. It doesn't just say Joe Bush. It says Bullet Joe Bush on Baseball Reference. That's right. So the funny thing is, is that just because you're terrible, because you listed the Astros rosters, you know, from those three. In glorious seasons that we had to endure where we got the number one overall pick three years in a row. Uh, the, the A's are going to get the number one overall pick this year. So the big question for this week is, is it worthwhile to take, do you think? I think it depends on the sport, to be completely honest with you. Um, in baseball... Kinda. If you, it, it really depends on the sport in the front office, right? Like if you've got a really competent front office that knows how to draft and scout and whatnot, then like it kind of does work out in your favor if you do it properly. If you look at what the Astros did, but again, they're like really the only like the ones who perfected that. The the Braves have a fantastic farm system, but they never really tanked per se. I think other teams have tried it. Um, but no one's really done it as well as the Astros have. I think football is the one that's easiest to say yes. I think it's easiest to say like this one guy made such a difference in the draft. Like you tank for one season, you get Andrew Luck, right? Like if you're the Colts, like that changed the course of their franchise. The NBA, it's a crapshoot. The Rockets have been tanking for three years, four years. And they still haven't gotten the number one overall pick. So I'd say probably on, on the whole, it's no. And that's just on the sports side of things on the, and then you look at what alienating your fan base, um, losing money, losing concession money, losing uh, apparel or, or you know jersey sales, all that other stuff that goes with it. Um, and then how hard is it to reengage that fan base once you guys are good again? Every city's a little bit different. Houston's a bandwagon city, so the moment a team's good, they're ready to hop on. But in some other cities, like you may never get people to come back. You know, the Marlins have never won their fan base back after they sold everybody off after winning the 97 World Series. They pissed off that whole city, and they were done with them. So, you know, that's that's a risk that you take too, Scott. Well, so let me throw you some names out here. This is where, you know, kind of interesting where the, the A's have gone. So you've got 
Sean Murphy having a great year in Atlanta as a catcher. He was the ace catcher. Matt Olson also in Atlanta. Uh, I don't know if he's having a great year, but he's having a nice power season so far. He's had, uh, you know, oh, among the league leaders and home runs. He was there. Marcus Simeon, nice shortstop. He's a second baseman in Texas, but he was a shortstop for the Athletics. Gone. Matt Chapman, maybe the best defensive third baseman in the game. You know, he's having a nice season in Toronto. You know, need I go on? You know, they they had real to, quickly, Scott. I've I've got the two just two years ago. I've got the 2021 Oakland A's roster up. You got Sean Murphy, as you mentioned, gone. Matt Olson, as you mentioned, gone. Jed Lowry retired. Elvis Andrews, eh, he was at the tail end of his career. But you mentioned Matt Chapman. How about Mark Conna traded away to the Mets? Ramon Laureano's a shell of himself. Seth Brown never panned out. Uh, Starling Marte. Gone, left in free agency. Chad Pinder, gone. Josh Harrison, gone. Steven Piscotti, traded him away. Jan Gomes, gone. I mean, Chris Davis, gone. They have let everybody go. Uh, they got pieces back. But when you trade a major league star, it's very rare that you get equal turn back. It's very, very rare. I mean, you can we can look at the, uh, the Matt Olson trade, and I guarantee you that you're not going to get back the return that Matt Olson gave you. Like, it's just not, you're going to get six Miley guys hope that, okay, they got four Miley prospects, two of which are highly regarded. Um, Shane, Shane Langliers and, and Christian Pachi. So we know Shane Langliers is the starting catcher right now for the Oakland A's. And we know this season, Shane Langliers is not really killing it. He's sitting two ten. So that's the that's the, the the premier piece of trading Matt Olson is hitting two ten and he's twenty five years old just trying to get started in the major leagues. That's really late. Well, it's funny because I'm thinking about the Astros. In fact, the Astros were not the first person to do that. Uh, do what they did. Uh, the Cubs did it right before them uh, when Theo Epstein went to Chicago, and they won that World Series. Uh, actually won the 2016 World Series one, right, one year right before the Astros. Right. Uh, but they could not sustain it. The difference between, you know, the Astros and, and the Cubs is the Cubs just simply couldn't sustain it. They, they had some nice players, but, you know, like – They didn't have the pitching. That, that was the difference. Between the, all the Cubs guys were really, for the most part, offensive players, right? You had Rizzo. You had Baez. You had Bryant. Um, a lot yeah, – you did. had – Jason Hayward, Jason Hayward, you turned into a pumpkin. Arietto uh, had like a couple, uh, you know, a little bit of a run there, but also too, you had guys like just have career years. Javier Baez is a shell of himself as a player. Um, you know, he he had flashes, but never became who they thought he was going to be. Well, the problem with Baez is if he ever makes it to Cooperstown and gets voted into the Hall of Fame, I don't know how he's going to get to the podium because she sure won't walk there. Uh, he's guess, not getting to Cooperstown. I guess, he, I guess he's floating it. I, I, it's kind of the same thing, and, and you see kind of the same phenomenon with Tim Anderson, uh, with the other Chicago you know, team, the White Sox. Uh, he's having a rough year because he just swings at everything, and and that's you know kind of the rough part. But the problem I see with the tanking is not even so much, you know. You mentioned 
the crapshoot of the draft. How often is the number one overall pick the best player of the draft? I think in baseball, far less often than it is in basketball or in football. I think in basketball, you can almost bank on the number one overall pick being the best player in most drafts. Like you have your clubby Browns, you know, that, that kind of just didn't pan out. But, you know, most of the time, it's a really good player. Uh, but you have very few Bryce Harpers that come along. You know, like when the uh, the Nationals got back-to-back number one overall picks and they had Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg. That just doesn't happen. Uh, you know, what happens to the Astros is a lot more common. And, and for all of our player development that we want to go, oh, I mean, let's think about who we drafted. Carlos Correa, great pick. The next year. Wasn't the top overrated player, but he was one who was willing to sign for below slot so you could go and draft Lance McCullers and pay him more to not go into college. That's why they drafted Correa number one overall. Everyone wanted him to go Brian Buxton. Who has turned into. He's not Correa. A pretty good player when he's healthy. But he's not uh, Correa. He's not Correa. Now, the second year, who was our number one overall pick? Uh, it was the pit, Mark Appel, I believe. Mark Appel, who has pitched, I think, like three minutes at the major league level his whole life. Uh, so and he's they, no Then bar- they went Brady Rogers, couldn't ever Brady sign Aiken. him. Brady, Brady Aiken. Aiken, couldn't yeah, ever okay. sign him. And then they get the number two overall pick, which turns into Alex Bregman. But what has Brady Aiken done in his career? Nothing. Because he was missing, I think he was missing his UCL. Yeah, I think he had the same injury or the same thing that like R.A. Dickey had, where it just yeah. was not there. Yeah, so he had eventually had to have Tommy John, I think. Uh, and then he and, I mean, never... it's crazy to think the Astros were right on that. And it's the same thing that happened to Kamar Rocker, right? Where they're like the Mets didn't feel comfortable with his arm. And, you know, first season of pro ball, Kamar Rocker needs Tommy John surgery. Like, so, these, there's reasons for skepticism. So if you want to consider Alex Bregman as a number one overall pick, because he's the compensation pick you got for not signing Aiken, you could say we hit on two of those three easily. Um, two of four is fair. I think you can call it two of four. Uh, but Aiken was a bad pick. Well, that same draft, you got Kyle Tucker. So, you know, as, yeah. as when you got Bregman. So the thing is, is with baseball, it, it's just so hard because the number one overall pick, I mean, Mike Trout lasted until the 20s. Because he was playing, he came up in New Jersey, and nobody plays baseball in New Jersey. And so when he's sitting there putting up all these cartoon numbers in New Jersey, you know, a lot of the scouts for you, the top teams are thinking like, okay, who's this guy really playing? When the Angels like, yeah, okay. And I remember going out to uh, Sabre Conference in Anaheim in 2011. And there were people, he hadn't even made his debut yet. There were people already talking about giving him like a 10-year deal. Because they just knew he was going to be that guy. We actually watched the game where he had his first major league hit. So I could sit there and say, I saw Mike Trout has his first major league hit. I think I saw Frank Thomas get his first major league hit too, ironically, in, in, in Arlington. But the looking is, back on that 2015 draft, Dansby Swanson goes ahead of Alex Bregman. Um, Kyle Tucker goes fifth. That Nintendi goes seventh. Ian Happ goes ninth. And then between 10 and 23, you don't have one legit major league player. I mean, that just shows you in baseball how hard it is to scout these guys. And then it's, you get guys in the 20th round that will all of a sudden just, you know, 
you know, they'll kick ass. You've got That's a guy a- who was drafted in the 39th round. Jared Walsh made it to the major leagues. Astro, uh, sorry, the Ty France, the first baseman for the Mariners, was drafted in the 34th round that year. Um, Cedric Mullins drafted in the 13th round. I mean, the baseball draft is such a crapshoot because it's not just how talented are you. It's how talented are you slash how likely are you to sign if we were to draft you because you can go back to college for another year. You can go to college period and just say, thanks, I'm fine. It's such a convoluted draft system that talent isn't the end-all be-all when you draft these guys. And it's, it's, it's a tough process for sure. And they've discouraged taking. If you did, you ever read Buddy Ball? I did not. I was I read Astro Ball, but I did not read Money Ball. So Money Ball, the rules were just. I mean, they were outrageous. So if you uh, basically, uh, you know, you have like you, you have the, you know, you could have one guy where you could make him a franchise player and get a first-round pick. The rules back then is anytime you lost a free agent, if you offered arbitration, you got a first-round pick if the other team signs them. So when the A's are, are trading for guys like Ray Durham at that time, they use them for a couple of months, let them go, they got a first round pick. Now you look in that draft, you know, Oakland's got like five or six first round picks. It was, the, it was the stupidest thing you'd ever see. Now, back in those days, tanking. Yeah. I'm not signing my own free agents. If you give me five or six first round picks, shit. If I, you know, if I know what I'm doing now, the thing is what I've said about Dana Brown and what I, what I'm hopeful with Dana Brown is that when it comes time, for these guys, you know, so Bregman's up after this uh, next season, 2024. Altuve's up after 2024. I think Tucker's up after 25. Uh, Framber's up after 25. Do you sign them long term or do you let them play out their five, six season? Or do you trade them? Now, to me, what I like about Dana Brown is Dana Brown is good at recognizing talent if you base it on his old model. So if you were to think like if there's anybody out there that could get two or three prospects to actually hit, it's somebody like Brown. And so you got to ask yourself at any point, if you believe you can't sign those guys long term are you thinking about dealing them or do you just want to write it out until they're done I think it depends on how good the team is right because you let Springer walk you let Correa walk you let Verlander walk but you did it after runs right you did it after deep postseason runs so um, if you let God I hate this but let's say it's you know a contract year for Bregman you're in the middle of a postseason push I mean, sure, I could see moving them to get a couple pieces that maybe help you now and later, um, but it, it'd have to be something like that, right? Or the bottom would have to fall out of this team. You have a year where injuries pile up. Uh, you know you can't sign both Bregman and Altuve. Now you got to make a decision. Okay, obviously Altuve's not going anywhere. It sucks. We're going to trade uh, you know, one of our players to restock a little bit and be able to go back at it again next year. 
but realistically, as long as this team's good, we've seen that the you know the mo is is go get rings and hope and hope that the desire to win championships can outweigh pure monetary wants and you know hope for the best. You know, I think what's hurting us with Bregman for sure is that he already signed a hometown deal one time. Um, but also he hasn't necessarily put up monster numbers in a while. So I don't know. I'm really intrigued to see what the Bregman market is, but I do think there is a situation where you have to make a trade, but I think it involves the bottom falling out or, you know, a big injury or something along those lines. Cause the big problem with the qualifying offer, that was the term I was looking for that I couldn't uh, find in my brain, but quali- uh, the qualifying offer, particularly when you're in a situation like the Astros, you're getting a compensation pick, but it's like a third rounder, yeah, or second rounder. I mean, <laughs> no a qualifying it, offer. You get a, you you take the other team's first round pick. If someone uh, signs, if someone signs your guy, you get their first round pick. Is why like Keuchel didn't get signed for the longest time. Uh yeah. I, I don't know if that's the new rules though. I I, I have to look that up, but. Uh, but it's really and, – and I, I don't like the qualifying off, offer system. What I like is actually the way the NFL does free agency. When the way the NFL does free agency is that you sign whoever you damn well want, right? As long as you can fit it under your salary cap, you sign them. You don't get cost picks if you sign free agents. What happens is, is that the NFL awards you compensation picks – if you lose certain free agents, and it depends on what they achieve at their next level, how much they signed for, but also, you know, how much, you know, whether they, you know, actually baseball do. Baseball switched spot. to that method too, Scott. Baseball switched to that a little bit more of that. So now your your top first round pick is exempt from being taken if you sign a player who rejected their qualifying offer, and then the the pick that you get. Uh, depends on how much money you signed them for, essentially. So, like, if you signed a low-level contract with someone, then you're giving up a fifth-rounder. If you sign someone to a big-money deal, you're giving up a second-rounder. I just think the qualifying offer is a barrier to movement if I'm a player. Uh, because if It I definitely tr- hurts some guys, right? Because if I got to give you big money and give up a pick just for the right to go sign you, it's... But but it's the owners are the ones who put this in there, right? Yeah. Like, and the players are, and the players agree to it because if perfect example, Colby fucking Rasmus, like that guy stole eighteen million dollars from the Astros his second season with us. Like for players like that, yeah, you take that shit because it's guaranteed big money one more last time. So that's why he got. But the, but for I the can't. owners, you can see why they did it. Yeah, I think uh, this last season, uh, your Colby Rasmus was Jock Peterson. Ended up taking it, you know, and, and Jock Peterson is a nice player, but he's not a, you know, 17, 18, $19 million player. Um, but see, here's the, you know, and so what I would do if, it, if I were in charge, I was the commissioner, I'd sit there and say, no, you're not getting a qualifying offer. No, you're not, and there are, and you're not losing any draft picks. What we're going to do is at the end of the second or third round, we're going to add compensation picks. So, like, if you're the Astros, you lose Justin Verlander. Uh, you know, you sign Jose Abreu. So, maybe we consider that a wash. Okay, whatever, right? But there's some other teams that just can't sign their guys. Maybe they could get two or three or four conversation picks. And that's where you start. And, and to me, maybe you could sit there and say, hey, 
you could turn down the picks and you could take like an extra five million in international bonus pool money, which you know you could use to sign some you know the big time you know, international players. And so you know that's where baseball you know if they ever get to an international draft, I think you know maybe taking is going to maybe pan out a little bit more because if you could sit there and go like, hey, I get the number one pick in the United States and the number one pick international. You know, my chances of, you know, winning, my chances of finding that star probably go up exponentially, you know, if I were to do that, rather than having it like a pure and, – and, and I've always thought they should do this anyway because then there's no scandal about somebody being 15 who should, who's saying they're 16 or saying they're 18, they're really six, you know, say uh, when they're 20. So, you know, that's, uh, I don't know if you've heard that Jose Abreu rumor that he's really older than 36. That's what some people are saying. But, you know, if Major League Baseball has to clear everything, you're lying to Major League Baseball. You're not lying to the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Astros. You're lying to Major League Baseball. So, if, you know, if the Astros were to draft a guy who is pretending to be 50, you know, 16, he's really 50, the Astros aren't to blame. Major League Baseball, you are the ones that, you know, cleared this guy. Or so, the agent who set it up. Right. I mean, but I think that's where baseball needs to go is I think there needs to be an international draft because I still think, you know, you have deep pockets. And, you know, like we know the Astros set up a, a, an academy in Venezuela. They've had to abandon that because of the political problems of Venezuela. But, you know, they've got pipelines, you know, right now. You know, how many players from Cuba have we seen run through you know this team and, and you know, they've got they've got guys coming in from certain spots you know where they set up academies I mean Altuve is one of the more famous ones so you know I'd like to see an international draft because I think that's the best way to get these bad teams to be better sooner I agree with everything you're saying. I just don't want to see that draft from a selfish standpoint because I think the Houston Astros is one of the teams that handle international talent better than anybody else, minus maybe the Braves. But now we've got the Braves guy who was really good at handling international talent. So that's a selfish reason why I feel like that is one of the reasons the Astros' talent's been so sustainable because of the Latin uh, Latin American influence to the Astros' roster, right? Christian Javier... Um, Luis Garcia, um, Framber Valdez, I mean, it goes on and on, right? Jordan from Cuba, although we didn't draft him. But, I mean, still, you've got this influx of Latin American talent. And as you mentioned, a lot of it from an investment the Astros started 10 years ago, if not more, in that part of the world. So should we be punished because we had the foresight to go down there and, and spend some money and invest in human beings? I don't think so, but I do also, we're reaping the reward. So I could see how it would be better for other teams. I just, again, as a selfish Astros fan, I don't want to give up what we've got going on for us. So, you know, I guess before we get to sports scumbags, I think the thing that, and, and I was thinking about this this weekend, because you and I, we've endured some really painful rocket seasons of late. We've endured some pretty painful Texas seasons of late. And 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 we talked. You talked about uh, a tweet that was sent out by the Astros. You know, where ten runs in front of tens of fans. 
did you really feel good about sweeping the A's? Or is it more like a feeling of relief? Like, thank God we didn't lose to the A's. I think it was a relief and like, hey, we we definitely needed those three wins just to make sure we're not falling too far behind in the AL West. Like, I didn't didn't feel like, oh, great, we won. I I felt, hey, the bats woke up a little bit. Two, you know, two pretty high-scoring games for the Astros' offense was a good sign. Like, but then again, and then you have to just remember yourself, hey, it's the A's. But then you see... Hey, I, I thought we played a pretty good game last night against the the Twins. You know, Presley coughed it away in the ninth, but you know, good signs of life, right? Clutch home run from Altuve late in the game. Like, I, I I was excited just for the guys that got rolling. You know, Altuve got his first homer. Abreu got his first homer. I think for those reasons, I was optimistic and excited about it because of the guys that got rolling. We needed them to get rolling to be successful. Yeah, I think in watching Jose Bray around the bases. That was great, was just, it? Yeah, sliding into the dugout. I mean, that's just, oh. And then the guys, you could tell they like him already. You know, two months yeah. in. He fits that clubhouse. Yeah, and that's, you know, you want to see him get going for that reason. I just, you know, and I felt that when we were playing the A's back here at home, I felt like this just, oh, you know, thank God they would. And, and this is such a terrible place to be in. It's a terrible place. And, and, you know, people have made this point before, you know, talking about the Yankees. Like, it's going to get to the point where you're watching a Yankees inter-squad game. I mean, it, you know, Kansas City, obviously, they won back in 2015. But they've sucked really, really hard, you know, since then. They still suck. I don't know where they're going. It's just, that's, but that's baseball, right? When you're, I think the trend in baseball for the most part is when you're a small market team, you're not one of the big six to eight, you can't keep a championship roster together. You just, there's too much money out there chasing after your pieces for you to be able to sustain that success. I mean, immediately Hosmer was gone off that roster. Um, Alex Gordon was a desired piece. I mean, Mustakis was a desired piece and it's just, you lose that chemistry and it's gone. Like I, I consider the Astros a bigger market. I don't, I know, I know like the actual media world doesn't, but like when you look at the resources that the city of Houston has, we're a big market. So we've been able to, for the most part, keep the nucleus of this team intact. I, I think what was considered the nucleus has changed over time. And that, you know, we're fortunate that we have the talent acquisition that we do because I think, Many other teams, if you lose in consecutive years, Springer, Correa, and Verlander, that's it. Your window's closed. Um, but you know what? When you're able to hold on to Javier, to Fromber, to Bregman, to Kyle Tucker, to Jordan, to Altuve, that's your core, and you're able to keep winning that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think, you know, baseball's got to figure something out, I think. And it, it, if you look at it historically, it's actually a whole lot better than it used to be. Because um, if you look at the, you know, like, before the reserve clause, I mean, there's just, you know, I, I, t- I talked about the Phillies averaging 100 losses. You mean losses. like this before Kurt Flood just challenged everybody in baseball and said, like, yeah. you don't fucking own me. I can go somewhere else. And, and the thing was, yeah. And that, that, you know, he, he could have been a Hall of Famer. He, you know, that basically ended his career more or less. You know, I think at some point, 
we got to do an episode on Kurt Flood. We got to do an episode on what free like free agency, right? Like, how, like I think at some point we've got to get in there and be like, hey, I don't know if you guys realize this, but like players used to be owned for life by a certain team until this one guy said, no, this is bullshit. I'm going to fight for it. Um, I think for that alone, you should be in the Hall of Fame, right? Like you were the guy who changed the way baseball is done. That's a Hall of Fame worthy thing. They finally put in Marvin Miller. So, you know, they actually, you know, they, they might be closer to that than, you know, what you might think. But, yeah, it, it's, but yeah, that, that teams used to be terrible. We talked about the Philadelphia A's. The Philadelphia A's for like decades were bad. Then they'd have about a three or four year run, then they'd be bad again. Uh, and I think that's where really football is the only one that's figured it out. Because they're they're the only ones that have the hard cap, and so you know, could you imagine a Green Bay in Major League Baseball? There's no way. There's no way. But yeah, I, mean, I think realistically, what Kansas City probably is the the closest to that. It's like a quote unquote smaller market team. I mean, who who do you compare that to? Like, there really isn't. I mean, I guess I, I don't you, know. I guess you go based on support Tampa, or you know, I guess, or, but like. Financially speaking, Tampa's got money in the city. There's yeah. a lot of. I don't that, know. That park is hard to get to, and it is an absolute yeah. dump. It is an absolute dump. We 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 went to a game there. It's it's just it's. I have two. It's rough. I, I actually saw Wakefield take a no hitter into the eighth inning. Um, in that so they were still the devil. I mean, this was years ago. They were still the Devil Rays. It was a dump back then. It was still a newer stadium. And I walked in. I'm like. <laughs> Why would you build the Astrodome again when we don't even want to play in the Astrodome? Like, we the, have opened the new stadium. We just rebuilt the fucking dome. It's the tilted sombrero is what we used to call it because that oh. roof is kind of, you know, kind of tilted to the side there. All right. So we've reached that point, I think, where we want to take a look at, you know, scumbags for the week. Uh, I'm going to let Tim open it up because I'm kind of – I'm still kind of tossing between a, a few different folks. So – I'll let you lead off here. Yeah, so I think tonight's Astros game got a little out of hand, and it was simply because the home plate umpire, Jerry Lane, decided to insert himself into a situation he had no business inserting himself into. And it's so frustrating in today's day and age that we still deal with these old-school umpires that can't handle being questioned on a strike call. They can't handle someone going, hey, man, I think that was a little outside. And all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose, and Jerry Lane literally comes from behind the catcher to stick his face in Jeremy Pena's face. Well, what do you think is going to happen on the Astros dugout when that happens? People flip shit. And the Astros, I don't know whether you know this or not, listener based, have a little bit of a volatile personality for their hitting coach, Alex Centrone. Um, has had some issues before starting fights with players on the field and uh, we'll say he got a little heated and was kindly asked to leave the game today. And it's, it just never should have happened. It was a situation that if you could handle your business as an umpire and handle a little criticism, that's part of the job, right? I mean, if, if my dad who's umpiring NASA little league games can handle criticism, then the major league baseball umpire shouldn't up I mean, show up the game. Every when I when I called games as a as a broadcaster, my whole thing was I am not bigger than the game. 
I am here to project the game to those who cannot be here. If you are an umpire, you do not insert yourself into the game. Your job is to call the fucking game. That is all that you do. And for some reason, we still have umpires who cannot cannot find a way to just call a game. They cannot keep their emotions out of it. And and for all the rule changes in baseball that we don't like, the one that we need to get and we need to get it now is the robotic umps. It is time. I am a purist in baseball. I get it. But the strike zone is the zone. And I'm so over every umpire having a different zone or the superstar strike zones a little bit tighter or the Greg Maddox gets six inches off the plate bullshit. It's got to stop because we get a report of how every umpire did after the game. And we can see when these guys sucked, why are we still allowing it? We get reports that show some of these guys just aren't good. And okay, they don't get a playoff series. Woo! What about the fact that they cost teams wins? Guys are going to get suspended. They're going to get fined for this. And this guy's going to... And you know what, Scott? He did this with Rob Manfred in the park tonight. Rob Manfred was sitting in Crane's owner's box as this umpire tries to start shit with Jeremy Pena. All right, so... I'm going to mention a name, and then I'm going to, you know, I'll go into my scumbag here in a minute, but uh, I'll tell a little story about, you know, referees inserting themselves. The name Angel Hernandez. Nobody is going to be more responsible for the robotic up than Angel Hernandez, who is sued Major League Baseball because they won't promote him. The reason they won't promote you, you jackass, is because you suck. You yeah, are to say that was racial he said it was racist. He's like, racial discrimination. It's like, no, man. Every baseball fan in the world groans when they show up to a game and they realize Angel Hernandez is behind the plate. Like, or, it, it, like, or, oh, first Angel base, Hernandez. or at first base, because he can't even really do just, that. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> just so. if you find out Angel's working your game. Like, as a fan, you go to the game, and they announce the umpires, and you see Angel Hernandez, you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Ah, shit. I don't want this. Okay, so before I get to my scumbag, uh, one of the last games, my, my daughter quit playing volleyball this year. She uh, she played for the freshman team, Brooke. Um, and really, she just prioritized choir. She wants to do choir. So she's now in choir and band. They get to call her band nerd. She, she doesn't, you know, agree, but hey, whatever. So we're watching this referee. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever watched volleyball. Uh, that much, but when the setter, so when the setter's uh, setting the ball, they have to set with their two hands together. If they hit it unevenly, they call it a double hit, and it's illegal. The other team gets a point. So he's sitting there calling this double hit thing, like I say on a third of the sets, which is just utterly ridiculous. And so we started to give them some business. And so you know, in between the games, he turned around. He's like, okay, who's giving me the business? And we're kind of looking at him. I was like, hey, you know, it's us. He says, he says, I'm trying to train these girls on how to play volleyball. And I just looked at him. I said, you see that person over there? That's their coach. It's their job to train them on how to play volleyball. It's your job just to call the game. So, you know, and, and that was, you know, it was just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
Well, you know, you had me on the referee train, so here we go. I don't know if you've heard the latest scandal in the NBA uh, with Adam Silver and what he discovered. Uh, do you know where I'm going here? I don't know. So it was discovered that one of the referees set himself up a burner account. And so when people were trashing his calls on the Twitter machine, he got up on the burner account and he defended himself. And so, oh, Adam Silver's all Twitter. Oh, no, we can't have this. So let me throw another name at you and see if it evokes any, uh, the same emotions in you that it evokes in me. I'm going to go Joey Crawford. Oh, God. <laughs> he was so – him and Tony Brothers, man. He – oh, God. My favorite was when – you know, my favorite is we obviously won the championship that year. But when he tossed Drexler in the first quarter of a playoff game. And uh, I think that was when we were playing Utah. And we got down. And we, we were down, you know, 2 nothing. you know, against Utah. And everybody's, you know, is all, you know, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And that was after we had beaten Phoenix in the first round. And so, you know, we thought, oh, the Rockets are going to fizzle out, you know, because they had to, you know, they just had to, you know, really muster up so much to beat Phoenix. And then he tosses, you know, Drexler in his playoff game. And, of course, we go in the tank because, you know, no Drexler. All you got is Dream and, you know, some other guys. It's like, you know, what the hell, you know? I mean, this is the same. This is the same ref that ejected Tim Duncan for laughing on the bench and told Duncan that he would like to fight. Could you imagine that fight, Joey Crawford versus Tim Duncan? Like Duncan, not only has like an athlete, the reach, like Crawford's never getting anywhere near him. (laughs) Tail of tape. He got six foot ten with a forty-five or you know whatever seventy-two inch wingspan. Yeah, he's got seven foot wingspan. Five foot seven. (laughs) Do you remember when he raced when he raced Charles Barkley and then like ate his shit and fell down? It was like NBA All Star Weekend and Charles Barkley and Joey Crawford legit ran like baseline to baseline race. And Joey Crawford ate his shit all over that court. Well, so you've got him. You got Dick Bavetta. You've got brothers who you mentioned. You got you know, Donahue, who's actually point shaving. And you're going to flip your shit over a referee having a burner account on Twitter? Is that you know? Is that the straw that breaks the camel's back? Really? It was actually Dick Bavetta that Chuck raced. I had that wrong. It was Dick Bavetta. But yeah, you're right. It's why did I, I, the idea of a burner is so laughable to me, Scott? Because like Kev, um, KD, Kevin Durant got caught having burners. Like when people would talk shit about Kevin Durant, he'd hop off onto the burner. And like, I don't know if you ever came across this, but I think Jack Easterbay had a burner for a little bit. Yeah. And I, and I got into it with this thing, and I was just like, I kept them like, you are Jack Easter Bay Burner. And he'd respond with, every time I'd say that, all these reasons why Jack's not, I'm like, again, fuck you. I know you're Jack Easterby. Like, I have figured this out. Like, no one in the city of Houston is this complimentary of this person except the person themselves. I actually I had a second email uh, at Twitter for a while. Uh 
went by the name of Dr. Cornelius Bumfuzzle, where I was like a fantasy so-called expert, and I would just throw every stupid sports take I could think of. Like, yeah, the one I got, I actually got uh, Adam Clinton laughing uh, at one of them where I, I uh, you remember where Mark Sanchez was supposedly dating a high school girl? Yeah. And I said, well, he's, he's going to go on a date tonight, but he's got to wait for her to finish her trigonometry final. And <laughs> yes. And it's stuff that you, you, you wouldn't say yourself, but that's where, that's where, you know, and, and our daughter's trying to negotiate uh, social media now, and we're trying to hold that off as much as we can. But, you know, unfortunately, she needs it, you know, in, in some sense, you know, for communicating, you know, with a different friends for different events. But Scott, you got to be careful because it's a cesspool out there. And, and uh, our poor referee, I, I can't remember his name, the one who actually had the burner, but uh, but imagine being told you're not going to referee in the NBA finals because you had a burner account. I mean, that's just, that's rough. It's Eric Lewis, by the way, is the uh, referee who had the burner account. It's just, I don't know. Like I, I, there, maybe there, there must be a rule against like refs having Twitter accounts, right? Because why can't you just, if you're a ref, hop on there and be like, "Hey, uh, you're wrong. Here's why I made the call I made," and that's it. End of story, right? Like I just have to, because players can hop on there, right? Like that's what made KD's burner even more ridiculous. Like you're fucking Kevin Durant. Just hop on and tell these guys to stop talking shit. Like you don't need to create John Johnson. Uh, you know. <laughs> physics major to, to, to like defend you you're you're fucking kevin durant like my name is oh. my, my name is zach feasterby <laughs> right yeah like i'm uh i'm john i'm john we- i'm john westerly and uh no, like what are we doing man like it's, it's the idea that you need a, a, a burger account as an nba ref to justify or defend yourself on t- just fucking lock off twitter if it is getting to you that much, delete the app. Delete or, the app. Or you can block people. That too. That's block, oh, my God. Blocking people is fantastic. I love to get in. I don't know about you. I'll get in one last little, and then I block. I've never blocked anybody on Twitter because I'm just not active on Twitter. Um, I'll sit there. I think the you last- don't stand up for the Astros enough. I've been told I'm a bad father because I accept cheating because I like the Astros. I, I don't. Well, the last argument I got into on Twitter with somebody was over uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. That, that shows you how long ago it's been since I've had a, a Twitter battle with somebody. I mean, I'll, I'll interact with Astros Twitter, you know, because I, I know who a lot of these, you know, these people are. And so, you know, it, it's cool on that level, but. Um, I use it mainly to promote for Battle Red blog and just to see other idiots, you know, kind of from, from time to time. But what I do do is I snooze people on Facebook. I don't know if you if you figured that yeah, one out. Yeah, I've muted or snoozed them for sure. Because I, uh, well, because I have people who are family or white my wife's family. It's like I really can't delete you without you know stuff happening but yeah you're snoozed i'm gonna hear from you for 30 days that's nice yeah for sure well scott i think that is looking like all we have for the week on 
scumbags. Um, any any sports tweets or anything out there that uh, that caught your eye? Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but yeah, I think the reaction. Uh, we talked about the tweet that the Astros sent out. Uh, you know, ten runs versus oh, in front of tens of fans that they had to delete. There was just a whole lot of just noise around that early this week here in local Houston radio. And to me, it's just, it's just good nature fun. I mean, I, it, you see the same thing between fast food restaurants. They do this all the time on Twitter where they go after each other and it's fun. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, that seems kind of stupid to me, but maybe that's just me. Yeah, uh, you're right. I'm with you. It's fun. It's jesting. Um, and there is a fantastic Twitter account. I think it's called Athletics Rants or Athletic. Um, I can't even remember that. So I'm going to find it real quick. But he is a great follow because he is the most. It's called Athletic Rants. He's the most realistic baseball fan on Twitter. He never shit on the Astros at any point during the scandal. Like he, he's fantastic. And even he came out and he's like, this is funny. Like this is jesting. This is. He's like, there were tens of fans in the ballpark. Like, who cares? We're leaving. They've alienated the city. Stop whining about it. Um, but I do have one tweet that I want to bring up, and I, I should have got to it last week, and I, I want to get back to it this week because Gino Banali is the caddy for Joel Damon, and Gino is an unbelievable Twitter follow. This is the caddy who rode his bike last year to the PGA um, uh, the the tour the tour championship at saw at Sawgrass the TPC because traffic was too long and he literally was like video documenting his ride on this like 1940s bike through town he he like hits a gust of wind and it was like a fantastic journey watching this guy bike four miles to the golf course so Joel Damon sets him up with an opportunity to play um, Oakmont the day after the PGA Championship ends he sets his caddy up. And his caddy, Gino, is a plus one handicap. So he's a good golfer. He live tweets the round. Every hole, he's live tweeting it. And it is absolutely Twitter gold, Scott. Like, this guy is just breaking it down. So he ends up shooting 85. Um, and he's just so proud of himself for his 85. Well, then the PGA Tour took all of his tweets, essentially his hole-by-holes, and they did, like, one of the classic, like, major scorecards with, like, Gino Benali, 85, plus 15, and then it had all of his scores on the bottom because he tweeted out what he did on every hole. Um, and it was just such a fun thread to follow because this guy was not taking himself seriously. Anytime he's, like, up in the rough, had to chip out again, up, oh, Punch back out to the fairway. Oh, finally hit a fairway. Looks like I can make a par here. I mean, he was just self-deprecating. And as Gino Benali normally is, he was he was hilarious. And I love it when the sports actually lead into that. I mean, the fact that the, cause the, the PGA Tour could have been stuffy. And they could have, you know, they could have, oh, what, you're not, you know. But they Why are you needed, tweeting while you're out there? You know, yeah. Yeah, they could have, but they they... The thing is, is it's free publicity. It's good, you know, it's good stuff. Uh, the NFL, these, you know, that's the one thing that bugs me about the NFL is you have these guys that are celebrating. And like the worst one was, you remember the Icky Shuffle, the Icky Wood? Yeah. 
and they, and they sit there and band it in, uh, in the end zone. And so he had to start doing it on the sideline. It's like, come on. What are we it being doing? the dirty bird at one point? What are we doing? That's, that is one of the things I like about soccer, Scott, is they encourage you to celebrate your goals, right? Like I, when I lived, was in college at San Antonio, I lived, it was called the soccer house. And three of my four, three of the guys that I lived with, I was number four in this house. They all played on St. Mary's soccer team. And it's like one day we were talking about that and it was, you know, we're watching baseball and some guy pimps his home run. And I was like, oh, he's going to get ear holed here pretty soon. And, Oh, you know, why does that happen? It's disrespectful, yada, yada. So I'm like, well, why do you guys celebrate goals that way, right? Like, you can't dance in football like that. You can't really do that in baseball. And their answer was so simple. It was a goal is a joyous occasion. You celebrate joyous occasions. And it was just like we were the idiots for not celebrating. Just the way it was explained was like it's a joyous occasion. Why not celebrate? I remember we were, uh, my buddies and I, before I got married, I, we were in Washington, D.C. We went to the ESPN zone. We were watching the World Cup. And Cameroon scored a goal. And they had the best celebration. The guy that scores the goal, he takes off his jersey. And they put it on the ground. And the whole team is dancing around this jersey like it's a shrine. And it was like, this is just the coolest thing I've ever seen. Uh, I remember they had the video game. And this is what I love. You know, you talk, talk about technology. They had a, a World Cup video game. You know what the best country was? I don't. Think about where the game was made. I, I, I don't know, Scott. You're going to have to deal <laughs> with it. Japan. Uh, they they okay. were running circles around everybody in this game. And you're, just, and you're just like looking at it, it's like I don't think Japan's really this good in real life but you know anybody that wanted to play that game you picked Japan because you knew Japan you know, it's like you know when you had Techno Bowl I don't know if you played the old Techno Bowl uh, where I you had that was before my time uh, but you always picked Oakland because they had Bo Jackson and Bo Jackson could just outrun everybody uh, and it was just yeah fun times but yeah if we could all dance around like soccer, I think the world would be a better place. I'm with you, Scott. Celebrate your wins. Ignore the losses, right? <laughs> Just blow yeah. right past those losses. But, hey, big week coming at us. Um, <clears throat> right now I am second in the, in the golf league. My partner is seventh overall. No, I'm third individually. Partner is seventh. And our team is first. We're getting back out there on Thursday. Um Hey, real excited to go at it. We, you know, Giles got a home game on Saturday, taking maternity pictures on Friday. It's a big week for uh, Snap Hook host here. Yeah, big week for you. Uh, I'm I'm off for the summer, so Scott's uh, like, I'm just chilling. I'm, I, uh, just chilling. I'm relaxing. Well, you know, the fun thing I'm doing later on this summer, and it's funny, my daughter, uh, she's not going to be able to go, but I bought tickets for Tears for Fears. Oh, I'm jealous of that. I love Tears for Fears. So you're, you're so jealous. You're the old well, well. Ooh. Uh, I bought three tickets. Janet's going to be in Canada. Ed's going to be at choir camp. So I've got two tickets available. Hey, we might we might have to work on something here because uh, it's a mad world. If I'm not uh, if I'm not coming to that concert, but uh, I like Kurt Smith, man. He's it's a pretty talented guy. It's on a Sunday night, so it's, you know, 
it might be a quick turnaround for you, you know, to go back up to the, you know. Uh, I make my own schedule, Scott. I'm the Presidente. So if, if uh, like I said, I've got two tickets available if you're, uh, if you're interested. I think it's, uh, I want to say it's July 16th, but I'll have to look at the calendar. Uh, that might be doable based on the uh, the birth of the old kiddo, but we'll uh, we'll talk off air yeah. and see if uh, maybe we're we're gonna uh, see tears for fears because I I'm a fan, man. I, I uh, I'm not gonna lie, I I had a pretty big uh, tears for fears spell last year where I just jammed a ton of tears for fears. Well, you know, my daughter really wanted. Taylor, Taylor Swift tickets. It's like, honey, we really couldn't swing that for you, but you can come see Tears for Fears. Uh, and she's like, are they still alive? No, it's like, not quite a fair, not quite a fair trade-off on her like, end. Damn it. You know, but she's never been to a concert, so it's like, you you, you got to be, you know, beggars can't be choosers at this point. Uh, well, real quick, Scott, what was what was your first concert since we got, since we're on the subject real quick? Uh, you want to, if you want to be technical about it, I'm not counting like Houston livestock show and rodeo shows. I'm talking about like you went to a concert. Well, being technical, my parents took me to Neil Diamond when I was three. Wow. So that's, that's my first. And I saw him again back when I was like maybe 12. My parents loved Neil Diamond. They had like all the records. And so it was my, my job. My dad likes Neil Diamond. It was my job to play the record player, and every time there's be a scratch, you hear Scott, fix the record, and so you know that would be my job to go fix the, uh, you know, fix the record, readjust the needle there. Uh, I got a good Dan Rather story. We'll tell next time. Uh, what, save that for if you time. took a guess, who do you think my first concert would be? What's what's the genre you're looking at? Okay, so if you're you're coming of age, you're graduating in two thousand eight. I can so, tell you it was 2007 was when I went to the concert. 2007. Oh, we go with country western? No. We go with hip hop? He no. He, this I can tell you this artist had a little phase of country western, but he could do anything. Uh, we're doing Hootie? No, it was uh Eric Clapton was uh was my first concert. Uh, uh, little, little slow hand. Uh, you know what? We were both at that concert, maybe. That was a great show, man. He did like was an that, hour of acoustic. Was that the one with Eric, uh, with uh, Steve Woodwood? Yeah, Higher Love. Yeah, so uh, Steve... Well, I've seen played. Woodwood twice now. I saw Woodwood open for um, Tom Petty as well, well no, years later. Well, they were in Blind Faith together, so most of the songs they did were Blind Faith songs. Yeah. If it was the same show. Uh because we we saw uh, Janet and I saw that show. We ran into my uncle because my uncle is a huge Steve Woodwood fan. Because uh, he grew up, you know, he was uh, older, my older uncle than the ones I mentioned earlier in the show. You know, yesterday's show. Uh, he's now sixty-seven or sixty-eight, I think. Uh, so he was like a huge, you know, Woodwood Clapton fan back in the in the seventies. Uh, yeah, that was. Man, those were tickets. Like I remember those tickets for about three fifty. Oh, mine was oh, not no. that much. We were mine was f- like seventy five bucks. I was not. Uh, oh, we were on the floor. Was, we were on the floor. I was not. I was not. <laughs> I saw Bruce Springsteen a little later uh, in that same year when he came to uh, Houston. That was the last time Clarence played in Houston before he passed away as well. Too. My, so that was my first concert on my own. Was McCartney back in ninety three. 
Uh, I went. Yeah, that's a good one. And, my, and what was well, the funny story behind that was that my parents had tickets to Neil Diamond again for the four of us, and at the last minute they decided to take my sister's boyfriend instead. Said you can't go. And so I pretended to be disappointed because, you know, by then Neil Diamond wasn't cool, you know, if you're 18 years old. So I made them a deal, you know, they made a deal that we will pay for one concert for you, you know, since you can't come to Neil Diamond. So I scored Paul McCartney tickets on the floor of the Astrodome, 50 bucks on my parents. Hey. Mr. and Mrs. Barzilla, it sounds like you helped Scott make a lifelong memory there. Yeah, that was that was definitely a win. If I can. But it sounds like now they're going to know that the con was in. Oh no, and, no, no! They've uh, known they've known for a long okay. time. They've known right. for truth, a long time. Truth comes out forty five years later. <laughs> yeah. you know, okay, so where can the folks yeah. where can the folks find you? Uh, on the on the old Twitter, Tim underscore Costello ten. Uh, you can always find us on the Snaphook Podcast on Facebook. And hey, we've got uh, Dollar Hot Dog Night coming up on Saturday for the Gaios. Um, uh, our website, gaiosfc.com. You can get all your tickets and merchandise there. We've got a pregame DJ. Uh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun night. We're doing give back night as well, giving back to the community. So uh, any canned goods, any clothing donations, we'd love to have them. Um, and hey. You know, hopefully uh, we got that win streak continuing. We have not lost a regular season game dating back to two seasons ago. So uh, playoffs hasn't gone our way as a team, but regular season wins and draws, man. I tell you what, uh, you can find me at S. Barzilla, and I'm still campaigning for this. If somebody could go to the ticket takers and say, hey, Chris Rose is a I, I think you're really – you're overestimating my ticket takers. I've got – a high school kid working this thing off their phone because that's where technology exists. And I, I think they would be highly intimidated. They'd be like, oh, uh, yeah, okay, man. It's fuck Chris Rose. I don't know. <laughs> Good for you. I don't know who that is. He sounds like a real asshole. You got to write down the names. You're like if anybody mentions these guys, you know, you you give them half I off. Guess. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Where, where can they find you? I'm at S. Barzilla on the Twitter machine. Please, please, please like the page. You know, give us a good rating. And if you have any suggestions for scumbags, please reach out to us on the Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to add more scumbags to our week. We just love our scumbags. We certainly do. And the uh, the sports ones are more special because they're not as serious. The, uh, the political scumbags literally at times are ruining our lives. Um, where the por- sports scumbags, I feel like more just piss us off as fans. And so that's like a little bit more fun to talk about than the people who have destroyed the world that we live in. All right, folks. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you have a great rest of the week. We'll see everybody next week on the snap hook. Thank you for tuning into the snap hook and making Scott and I a part of your week wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Snaphook.